Good morning. Um, I was not here last week, but I heard that Amy preached a killer sermon. Is that true? Okay. All right. Amen. Amen. So if you weren't here, I'm sorry, you missed it just like I did. But I've been hearing good uh, testimonies and stories. Before we uh, actually, before I uh, get to my sermon this morning, we're going to have hear from a couple of special guests that I'm very excited about. So if you're new to uh, our church, we recently, well, about a year ago, we launched a nonprofit called New Community Outreach. And we did this in order to become more strategic in how we are engaging alongside of our neighbors in different outreach activities, uh, things that we've been doing as a church since we started in partnership with other friends in the, in the neighborhood, um, following the lead of some other churches and organizations in our community, uh, we started this nonprofit to help us more strategically serve alongside of our neighbors in a way that is faithful and sustainable and strategic. It's also a way for us to raise money from outside of our community and bring that to the to bear for the the good of our community. So. Lots of strategic reasons why we wanted to start new community outreach. But for for our purposes as a church, it's a way to effectively serve an outreach alongside of our our neighbors. And that that looks a lot of different ways. Many of you participated in the back-to-school fair uh, this summer. That's one of the expressions of new community outreach. Some of you have signed up to volunteer at Jackie Robinson as, as classroom volunteers and mentors. That's another expression of new community outreach. Uh, but one that you don't have the privilege of seeing uh, very, very much, because it is still kind of new, is our work at Diet High School. And this is some work that we've been involved with for uh, three years now. We started with some focus groups two years ago, three years ago. Last year was a a pilot program. And this year, uh, Marquita is continuing the good work at Diet High School, where we're using the principles of restorative justice to engage with students who um, are are growing in their own maturity, life experiences through all sorts of different circumstances. Some amazing students. You're going to get to meet two of them today. Um, But be because this is not something that many of us are involved in, because this is something that you kind of support from a distance at this point, we wanted to take some time to let you know a little bit about what's happening at Diet, because it's good stuff, and we want you to be encouraged by it. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I'm going to invite uh, Marquita to come up, Minister Dr. Marquita Boone. Yeah, you act like you don't like it. You act, you act like. Um, so, so I would. I just want Marquita to give us, give us a quick snapshot, just overview of what's happening at Diet, and then invite our friends up so we can hear from them. Hello again, church. Um, Yes, we are doing wonderful things at Diet. Um, We have the key program, um, Knowledge Empowers Youth Program. I have three sessions um, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And the two young people that you will hear from today are from my third session, which is my liveliest bunch. Um, But I am thankful for them. And yes, um, we talk about a lot of things, um, um, things that are personal, things that might be funny. um, And we realize 
realize that in our lives we all have suffered some type of trauma in, in, in various ways. Um, it might not even be what you may think is traumatic, but um, it can be traumatic for someone else. So yes, I, I um, hope that um, they realize that there is a safe place for them in the KEY program. Um, it's a place they can come and not be judged. Um, we can talk about anything and everything and they know that it stays there with me. Um, I won't let any hurt or harm um, happen to them. If it's serious enough, as a mandated reporter, I have to report it. But thankfully, it hasn't been anything that serious. But it's things that um, I, along with God's help, can handle. Um, so I am privileged and honored to um, present two of the young people from the KEY program. Can you give them a new community welcome? I will allow them to first introduce themselves, and then I just have just a few questions for them. So, you know, just give them good smiling faces so that they can feel comfortable on today. They're very intelligent, so I know they'll do well. So introduce yourselves first. Uh, my name is Jonathan Thomas. Uh, basically a fuss me, even though I look like I'm 25, so that's <laughs> My name is Kaylee. I am also a freshman at Diet High School. Okay, let's start with Kaylee. Can you describe the KEY program? What, what do you think the KEY program, or what has it been to you? For me, it's been a place to like relax and let go of stress from class, and also being able to connect with my peers more than I can during like regular school. Um, same goes here, it's just a reliever for me because on the same day as a key program, I have something called an AP class, my God. Um, um, and it, basically, it's a very, it's a challenging class and when I come to the key program, we have a good time, we laugh, we talk about things that are on our mind that's been stressing us out and it's been good for me and my peers, so. Thank you. Stay there, Jonathan. And answer this next question. Now, talk about a particular moment that you feel comfortable sharing that where you really, um, that you really liked in the program. Where should I start now? So there was this one where Miss Kira uh, actually brought, brought up about the, the subject of racism and what have, have me or my fellow peers have struggled in that. So it came up because I didn't think, like, I'm very sheltered, so I don't really go out, go outside and deal with things like that. But, and I also thought my fellow peers did the same thing, but some of them were saying, yeah, I dealt with this. And I, I can't re remember a particular who said this one, but they said they had to deal with the police a bit. And I asked them, wow, I actually sympathize with you on that. And it was kind of like I know more about my peers and know what I should watch out for in the world. So God bless. Um, for me, it was the first time we did a peace circle, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And I think it was also the first time everybody was less rowdy and more calm. <laughs> and we were all able to really listen to each other and listen to each other's experiences. And I thought that was a really, really nice experience. And that's been my favorite part so far. Thank you. I have one more question. We'll start with you, Kaylee. What else would you like our church to know about your experience in the KEY program? Anything that you would like to share? Mm. I'm just very, very happy that I decided to join. I think it's a really good thing, and I think it should, they should continue doing it for as long as they can. 
For me, it's the fact that I get to meet or get to know a lot more about my peers. That's a good thing about the key program. So I know it. So if I ever try to start a conversation with them, I know some good things I bring up and know some bad things I can't bring up. So that's a good thing I should know. And the last thing, if you have not already shared this, just share one final thing of how the key program has either helped you with your peers or your family or in your studies or just in your life, period. Well, the key program has helped me become more aware than usual because, again, coming to the racism, I, well, yeah, coming to the racism thing, you sold us a documentary on February, mm-hmm. February 1, and I, some, and I did pay attention a bit, but, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it taught me to be, become more aware. I don't I try to stay a little bit on my own in class and so or at school in general and so with the key program I really talk to my classmates more and I like learning about them. So, yeah. I have I have one question. Oh boy. <laughs> Can you share with us one one hope, one aspiration, one dream either for something that's Right now or down the road, down the line in the future sometime? For the key program or just for you personally? Yeah. I, I really, 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 really hope that I can be a psychiatrist when I get older. That's, um, I want to major in psychology, and I can't remember the other class, but yeah. Um, it's similar to Kaylee's, I want to be a neurosurgeon. So basically dealing with the spine and brain and brain surgery and things like that because I feel like helping people as much as I can is a great thing I can do as long as I'm on this off. So Can I say a prayer for the TV before you sit down? Yes. Is that okay? All right. Church, would you stand up? They've agreed to let me pray for them. Would you just extend your hand in blessing? Uh, They've blessed us with their presence here today, so let's bless them now. In the name of Jesus, we thank you for Jonathan and for Kaylee. We thank you for the good work that you're doing in their lives. We thank you for their their thoughtfulness, for their curiosity, for their creativity. We thank you for the families that you've given them, the communities that you've given them, the friends that you've given them, the school, the teachers, the mentors, for for, for Marquita, Lord, for, for all those you've placed in their lives. And so we pray that you would chart the course ahead of them, Lord God. We pray that you would make plain the way, step after step after step, that they would hear from you their value, their worth, but also their responsibility, Lord God. What the good and beautiful work that you've called each of them to do, Lord God. So allow their hearts to be encouraged today. There is a, there is a, a community of people cheering them on, loving them, desiring the best for them, available to them when things get difficult. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Show them some love, church. Amen. So if, uh, if Marquita ever asks or makes an announcement, if you're interested in helping out with the key program, sometimes she needs uh, volunteers or special guests. Uh, hopefully this gives you a little bit of a, of a sense of, of what's happening there, the good stuff that's happening there. Uh, but do please keep this uh, in prayer. It meets how many times a week? Two times a week? Uh, how many different sessions? Three, se- three sessions, right? Uh, how many students total? 
26 students total. So we, we've gone from a very small focus group three years ago to a larger uh, test group uh, last year to the administration uh, really saying to Marquita, we'd love for you to keep growing this and expanding this and also to help our school create a culture of restorative justice. So God continues to open doors there, and I hope that you are encouraged to see what God is doing. Amen? If you can, turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, Mark chapter 12. If you're not familiar with your Bible, Mark is in the New Testament, the second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through chapter 13, verse 2. And once you found it, if you're able, would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word? As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. This is the word of God. And you can be seated. From this passage this morning, I'll preach from the title, Generous Justice. Generous Justice. Last week, I flew to Kansas City to co-lead a Sankofa trip. Um, The next Sankofa is in March. Some of you all need to be on that bus, right, Anna? Some people here need to be on that bus, right? Uh, That's Anna. Ask her. She was on a trip I led recently. And those of you who've been on the Sankofa journey might remember that in Memphis, uh, Miss Elaine, who actually walked that Selma Bridge as a child, Miss Elaine gets on the bus and gives us a tour of the city of Memphis. She points out the old slave markets. She describes in great deal the courage and the resiliency of enslaved people of African descent who, who against all odds, freed themselves through rebellions and and daring and complex escapes. But she also tells the story of one of my sheroes, Ida B. Wells. She got her start in Memphis, this anti-lynching, crusading journalist. And she was driven from her home in Memphis after writing a scathing article condemning a white mob who had lynched some of her friends in the city. Ida Wells is one of the bravest people I've ever read about. In her journalism, she often disproved the standard narratives about why African-American people in post-Civil War America were persecuted and killed by their white neighbors 
she exposed over and over again how ridiculous and deceitful these standard narratives were. For example, the most common reason given when white people lynched a black man was that he had sexually assaulted a white woman. But as Wells knew, as almost every African-American person in the country knew, this was not usually the case. The real history of this sort of abuse lay at the feet of white men who for centuries had acted violently toward the women they had enslaved. In the article that got Wells run out of Memphis, she pulled back the veil of this deceptive narrative. She wrote, Nobody in this section of the country believes the old threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women. If Southern white men are not careful, they will overreach themselves and public sentiment will have a reaction. A conclusion will then be reached which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. In just two sentences, Wells points out that it's actually white men who have a history of sexual abuse and that white women have voluntarily pursued sexual relationships with black men, a reality that polite white society pretended to be shocked by. It is a powerful and disorienting thing when someone like Ida B. Wells has the insight and the guts to speak truthfully to a deceptive society. Most of the time, we go along with the lie. We might not believe it, but it's just easier to build our lives around the deception than to risk the turmoil of the truth. I'd like to think that Ida Wells, in her relentless pursuit of the truth at risk to her own life, was simply following the example of her Savior, Jesus, as he so often did. Our passage this morning reveals Jesus telling the difficult and disturbing truth. And with Jesus, the truth, no matter how hard it is for us to hear, is still always good for his disciples. And so in our passage, we find that Jesus judged the temple and its leaders and praised the widow in order to prepare his disciples for his kingdom. You can actually trace a direct line from Jesus's truth telling words in these verses to his ultimate death. The truth is costly. As Jesus prepared his disciples for how to represent the coming kingdom of God, a kingdom that would be inaugurated at his death and his resurrection, as he prepared them for this kingdom, he included these difficult words about generosity and about justice. In a society that works to deceive you and I about these two topics— generosity and justice, I need to hear Jesus' challenging words on a regular basis. Maybe some of you do as well. And so here's the big idea for us today. We, Christian people, represent the kingdom of God through generosity and through justice. And we'll see how these two fit together. 
We represent the kingdom of God through generosity and through justice. In a world where deception is used to justify exploitation and inequity, Jesus points his disciples to the lived experience and the example of a poor widow. And it's from her that Jesus draws our attention to this truth, that we represent Jesus through generosity and justice. So we need to look at her example. But before we get there, we need to look at some noisy drama which surrounds her quiet example. On the front end of our passage, we find the injustice of the leaders, the temple leaders, the religious leaders. The context of our passage is that Jesus had led his disciples into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And and ever since he'd gotten into Jerusalem, Jesus had been mixing it up with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the elders, with the chief priests, and now with the teachers of the law. He got into debates with them. He told It's like the equivalent of throwing shade. He he told parables about the religious leaders where everybody kind of knew what he was talking about, even though he didn't quite say what he was talking about. But here, he just directly goes in on the teachers of the law. Watch out, he says, for the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law were the religious scholars. They were the religious leaders. They were associated with the temple. Jesus talks about their robes. They actually had certain clothing that they wore when they were at the temple. But because this clothing had certain prestige associated with it, they started to wear their clothes, their robes outside of the temple too, right? So people would know who they were and the good works that they had done. This was about their reputation. This is about their respect. This is about their religious honor and prestige. Jesus calls them out. It reminds me a little bit of this current Me Too, Church Too movement that we're in, where powerful men use their position, their powerful positions to take advantage of others. This is what Jesus is calling out in these religious leaders. He says, you're devouring widows' houses. This was not just about them looking good or feeling good about themselves. This was about them actually damaging those they were supposed to care for. How could they do this? Well, in their position, there was a number of ways that the teachers of the law could have abused their power. They could have accepted payment when they shouldn't have. They could have cheated widows out of their estates. They could have freeloaded on somebody else's hospitality. They might have mismanaged someone's estate that had been entrusted to them. They could have taken money for prayer, something they should not have done, or taken a widow's house in pledge for their work. All of these they, they should not have done. All of these were opposed to their work. And yet, all of these were common practice for the teachers of the law. Now, again, let's think contextually here. Israel is an occupied people. Rome has has taken over their land and has overtaxed the people for generations now. People have sunken deeper and deeper into poverty. People who who had land in their family for generations had to to sell their land. Wealth from Israel was offshored to, to other countries or taken by the Roman Empire. It was a desperate time. And, and the teachers of the law, rather than aligning with the people who had experienced this oppression, instead aligned themselves with the exploiters of the occupation. And Jesus, again, calls this out. Widows play an important role in our passage. They symbolized the vulnerable. 
And God is very clear to Israel about their posture toward those who are vulnerable. In Exodus 22 and 22, the law says, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. In Deuteronomy 27 and 19, it's even more direct. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. They were not to exploit the vulnerable. But there's even more for for Israel. They were actually to care for those on the margins. It wasn't just that they were not to exploit them, it's that they were to be provided for. Deuteronomy 26 and 12. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, to the foreigner, to the fatherless, and to the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Can we consider with sadness for a moment how far so much of the church is from God's heart when it comes to providing for those in need? This is a vision, a biblical vision, a God-given vision of economic generosity where vulnerable people were protected from exploitation but also cared for. You and I tend to be okay with a policy of do no harm. But that was too low a bar for Israel. Their call was even greater. Everyone among us should flourish. The religious leaders should have been the caretakers of this vision. And yet we find the teachers of the law exploiting it instead. And Jesus is angry about it. Jesus picks this fight. Other times, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they try to trick Jesus into something. They want to debate. Jesus picks this fight. Watch out for the teachers of the law. We're going to see in our passage that Jesus cares deeply for this widow. And so should we and and all who she represents. But what we need to also see is that Jesus cares why she's poor in the first place. Jesus reveals the the poverty that the society would rather ignore, but Jesus also reveals the embarrassing reasons behind that poverty. Israel was supposed to bless the world. So are we. Our calling is no different as the children of God, saved by faith in Jesus. In what ways have we become like the teachers of the law? In what ways have we become content with the lie that our culture tells us about the way things are? In what ways have we benefited from that deception and from that lie? The God who, as Deuteronomy 10.18 says, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, this God will not be mocked. Will not be mocked by those who claim his name while living opposed to his will. Jesus is very direct. These men will be punished most severely. This ought to be a heavy word for us this morning. This ought to be a word that puts a bit of a tremble in our heart and in our step. Would you ask yourself this morning, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, how am I complicit in exploiting those God cares for? 
How have I sinned against the most vulnerable? At the other end of our passage, there's another kind of noisy, spectacular scene. And here we find Jesus' judgment on the temple. This temple had been built by Herod the Great, who had at this point been dead for about 35 years. At that point, this temple was one of the wonders of the, of the known world. People everywhere, even if they'd never been to Jerusalem, knew about this temple. Uh, one stone has been found from this temple that weighs somewhere between 400 and 600 tons. It was impressive. It was massive. It was spectacular. And it worked on the disciples. <laughs> The disciples are from Galilee, most of them. It's the rural region. It's the agricultural region. It's the country. Anybody here from the country? All right. And they came to the city, and they were impressed. Oh, Jesus, look at these massive stones. We don't have anything like this in Galilee. What magnificent buildings. Our tabernacle couldn't compare to this. Our synagogue wouldn't look anything like this. But you see, for the disciples, this was not just about the size of the temple. This was not just about how beautiful it looked. It was about their source of identity, about their hope, and where they found their identity, and where they placed their hope. Oh, Jesus, look at this temple. It's amazing. This is a strong enough identity for us. When Jesus had first entered Jerusalem a few days earlier, the first place he goes to the temple courts, and it's an ugly scene. He starts throwing over tables and, you know, yelling at people and kicking people out. And now again, we see Jesus confronting the temple. In many ways, the temple had meant, was meant to symbolize God's blessing to the world, the place where heaven and earth were coming together, God's perfectly, perfect will done in heaven now colliding with earth. And yet over time, as Paul will reflect on it later, the temple had become a source of of exclusion, of barriers, of dividing walls, of hostilities. This was opposed to God's intention. The temple had become exclusionary, exclusive. As with the teachers of the law, Jesus now calls out the injustice associated with the temple. And he prophesies that this most impressive building, the, the, the one of the wonders of the world, would come crumbling down, would be destroyed, as it was 40 or so years later when the Roman Empire tore down that temple. Jesus is claiming authority over the temple. Jesus is standing in judgment over the injustice associated with the temple. He's standing opposed to an entire system of exploitation and exclusion. You see, not only does Jesus call out the individuals like the teachers of the law who exploit the poor, Jesus stands against the whole thing, the whole system, the whole lie, the whole deception. The temple was supposed to be God's blessing. It had become exclusive. The teachers of the law and the religious leaders were meant to help people live into their vocation to be a blessing to the world, and yet they had become exploiters, undermining God's intentions. In hindsight, obviously, this is all wrong. This is all backwards. We can call it out, but isn't this how deception works? In the midst of it, it's so hard to see, so hard to identify the air that we breathe. Church, anything of our own making that we then look to for our ultimate hope or our identity will corrupt. No matter if it's that leader you've put on a pedestal, that political party that you are so hoping for, that one Supreme Court justice who you really don't want to die anytime soon. I'm just talking about myself right now. 
It doesn't matter if it's your own your reputation that you've built so hard and, and, and are maintaining. It doesn't matter if it's your, your extended family. Anything of your own making where you find your ultimate hope and your ultimate identity will eventually corrupt. Anything of our own making or effort is infected with our sin. And so when we ask it to bear the weight of our identity and our hope, it will corrupt. It will wound those who should be cared for. Anybody have that experience in their extended family? Our best efforts, infected by our selfishness, our pride, our insecurities, in other words, by our sin, our best efforts, if we're honest, stand in need of judgment. As with the temple, what should have pointed to God becomes a replacement for God. And so rather than acting as God's blessing for the world, it hinders people from coming to God. And it stands in need of God's righteous judgment. This is the word of judgment that Jesus speaks over the temple and its leaders. And if we're willing to listen It's the word of judgment spoken over our sin and complicity as well. Lord Jesus, open our eyes. Show us how we've been deceived. Show us how we've gone along with a society that calls evil good and good evil. Show us where we've built our identity on anything other than you. Show us where we're finding our hope in anything other than you. Help us to confess where we have become complicit with the exploitation of our most vulnerable neighbors. Finally, at the, at the very middle of our passage, in the midst of all of the noise, we find this quiet and tender scene. It takes place in the temple. And the temple would have been packed and noisy for the Passover festival. People were literally coming from all over the world for this festival. And and Jesus seems to intentionally plant himself right where everybody was bringing their offerings. There would have been about 13 different receptacles in that area of the temple for people to bring their offering. And Jesus sits there. Now the disciples, they're looking at the building. Look at the stones. Look how massive. But what, what is Jesus looking at? The people. Jesus is looking at the people. Verse 41 says, many rich people threw in large amounts. Again, they they were coming for the Passover. They were coming from from all over the world. And it, it seems as though they were displaying generosity. But Jesus is looking closely. And in verse 44, he 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 diagnoses what's happening here. He says, They gave out of their wealth. They gave out of their abundance. Jesus says there's no sacrifice represented in their offering. Like the teachers of the law, many of these wealthy people coming from around the world would have built their wealth on the exploitation of their own people's land. They had benefited on the backs of those who were suffering. Again, Jesus pulls back the veil. The teachers of the law, they make these long and lengthy prayers, Jesus says, and it's just for show. Here, the rich are throwing in, they're they're throwing in their offerings. I mean, you can't, you know, that's, you want people to see this, you see? For show. In the same way that the teachers of the law 
made their prayers. This was not for God. This was about themselves. And God is not impressed. In contrast, this widow comes. We already know about widows. She comes. She's poor. This probably means she's on her own. She doesn't have anyone, an extended family to care for her, to take care of her. And she literally puts in the smallest amount of money you could have put into the offering. She gave what she couldn't afford. She gave from her poverty. She gave, Jesus says, all she had to live on. Now, given the context, I want us to try to imagine Jesus' tone of voice, right? We, we, we read his words. What, what does it sound like when Jesus talks about this? I hear praise. I hear, I hear him praising her for her generosity, you know, d- despite her circumstances, despite her suffering, despite her hardship, she still worships her God. She understands the purpose of coming to the temple is not to make a show, but to sacrifice generously for her God. I think there's some praise in Jesus's voice. I think he's proud of her. I think he sees her. I think he's calling out the, the dignity and the obedience and the faithfulness he sees. But I think there's something else. I think there's some heartache in Jesus' voice. I think there's some grief. I think, I think when Jesus points out the situation, we should hear lament. She should never have been poor in the first place. The very presence of the teachers of the law in their flowing robes and the wealthy tossing in their gifts were enough to ensure that she should never have been poor in the first place. She should have been flourishing in her life. And yet even so, she gives generously despite the wicked systems that had kept her poor, despite the selfish people quite literally standing in line behind her who had built their wealth on her back, she still gives generously. And this widow for us is more than just an example. This widow points us to Jesus and to the generosity and the justice of the cross surrounding her are these ostentatious leaders, these opulent buildings. Both claimed the way to God. Both claimed to represent God. But both were built on exploitation, corruption, and perpetuated inequality. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything all she had to live on. This is a vision of Jesus' own coming death. He too will give up all he had to live on. He will allow the judgment rightly due us to crash onto himself instead. On the cross, you and I are saved from our sins, but also the corruption and the exploitation of our leaders and our temples are exposed and their power is leached. On the cross, the one who is the capital T, truth, shreds the veil of deceit. 
In a world of exploitation and injustice, the generous justice of God climbed the cross for us and for our salvation. In a world of greedy religious leaders and exclusive temples, the Son of God offered himself in our place of our judgment, a quiet lamb led to the slaughter. In a world where widows are still devoured, where the poor are still exploited for somebody else's economic gain, Jesus' sacrificial death is a word, let's be clear, of judgment to anything and anyone who would treat vulnerable people as anything other than God's guests of honor. In a world where children are starving today in Yemen, where, as Pastor Michelle prayed, our military deploys to stop asylum seekers at our border. In this world, Jesus speaks a word of judgment to a society that cares less for these realities than the deals we hope to score on Black Friday. When Jesus sees the widow and he sees the widow, When Jesus sees the widow, he saw her generosity. And some of you need to hear today, God sees your generosity. Whether through your tithes, your your time, or your talents, God sees the way you generously have sacrificed, not out of abundance. Our anxious world provokes us to stinginess and to greed and to hoarding our stuff and yet So many of you, despite this, choose to be sacrificially generous in so many ways. And God sees you. Jesus sees the widow in her suffering as well. And God sees you in your suffering. In this life, we know there is suffering. There is poverty. As Jonathan says, there is racism. And these are opposed to the will of God. Jesus sees you. You are not forgotten. You are not abandoned for even an instant. You have a righteous judge working for your good. Your Redeemer lives. God does not condone your suffering, but neither will he waste it. So what do we do with this? How do we live out the generous justice of the kingdom of God? This gets very overwhelming to me. This gets very theoretical to me. In a materialistic, consumeristic culture, It's hard for this to not get a little detached. So I came up with three suggestions. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would give you at least three more. See if one of these couldn't be a way for you to get your hands around the generous justice of our Savior in the coming weeks. See if one of these couldn't be a way for you to live out the generous justice that we see in the widow who points us to our Savior. The first one, I'll just say like this, Advent simplicity. Starting on Friday, we enter the season of 
mass consumerism and materialism. There's like different days now for this, right? Like there's Good Friday and then there's like cyber something and yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, Black Friday. Yeah, Good Friday is something very different. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, Jesus. And then we had Giving Tuesday now, right? Because, you know, we got to make ourselves good, feel good about ourselves after Black Friday and Cyber Monday, now Giving Tuesday, right? So, so what used to be a sacred time of preparation for Christian people leading up to the incarnation of our Savior has now taken on a different liturgical quality, amen? <laughs> we are being formed in a different sort of direction. What do we need? How much can we get? How far can my dollar go? And so let me suggest Advent simplicity to us. Last year, we participated in an Advent fast. Some of you are like, please don't do that again. Please don't do that again. Please don't do that again. That's up to you. you, you that's, we're not going to do that to you this year. But maybe it's Advent simplicity. You know, may, maybe you need to sit down with a friend, with a spouse, with a family member and say, let's have a conversation about our budgets. How much, is, how much are we really okay spending this time of year? Um, maybe like you have a family where everybody buys everybody t- junk that they don't want. Anybody? Anybody? So maybe you be that wild person that says, hey, let's pick a name out of the, out of the hat. So instead of buying everything for everybody, we just choose. And it's, I have a side of the family that we just, we don't even do gifts anymore. We all, we choose like a charity and we all give to that charity. And that sounds really nice, but really it just makes life a lot easier, right? What, what, would, what would simplicity in the weeks of Advent look like to you? What would some extra space, some extra time, what would it look like to lean more in the direction of generosity than consumption? The direction of sacrificial giving than materialism? What would that look like? Advent simplicity. Four weeks. I, I know some people who, who make a commitment to literally just buying as little as possible during Advent. If they're going to get Christmas presents for people, they try to do it before Advent so that those four weeks can just be open space of rejoicing, of celebration, of anticipation of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to say to you is that what our culture does to us in the coming weeks is not inevitable. So maybe turn off the television, right? Shut the screen down because it's always like reminding you of that thing you really, really want to have. And on Friday, you're going to get 10% off that thing, so you better get that thing. Advent simplicity. Here's my second one. Every year we do a year-end giving challenge. That's what it's called, right, Dennis? Year-end giving challenge. And that's always, as a church, that, that giving challenge is always to benefit something that God is calling us to lean into. And this year, the leadership team, I take no credit because I wasn't here, I wasn't around, the leadership team discerned that that should go toward our work with youth. And so a portion of, the, of our Christmas offering, of our year-end giving challenge, is going to go to a specific program uh, at Diet through New Community Outreach, a small percentage of it, and the rest of it is going to be to go to launching this new work with youth and children in our church. And we want to fully fund that thing before this year is out. Amen? That leadership team's pushing us a little bit on that, right? We want to have this thing fully funded. So we ask everybody to stretch in their generosity the last part of the year. So what would it look like to take a little bit of time and to actually thoughtfully prayerfully consider how much you could give toward that giving challenge. I said prayerfully. Did you hear me say prayerfully? Not guiltily, not you supposed to, but what, what would the Spirit do in you to provoke some generosity so that we could see more and more of our young people thriving and flourishing? Amen?
That's our desire. That's our goal. You're going to hear more about that in the coming weeks. Finally, how can we be generous to you? How can our church help you flourish? So we don't normally think about it that way, right? Like we put ourselves in the position of, well, I should give more. I should, I should do more. I should be more generous. That's great. I need that. That's a word for me. But maybe for some of us here, the word for you is Jesus's lament over your situation. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus saying, you never should have been in that situation in the first place. This hardship that you're facing, this debt that you're facing, this poverty that you're struggling with in this particular area, you never should have known it in the first place. How can this community, you all got real quiet here. Are you with me? Are you all still with me? Are, how can we be generous to one another? Well, that means that we have to tell each other what we need, which most of us are not good at. There have been moments in our church where I found out after the fact that somebody had to take out a, a loan with, hor- with a horrible interest rate on a not very large amount just because they wouldn't let us know what their need was in that moment. Don't do that, okay? <laughs> let the people sitting next to you be generous to you. Let your community help you flourish into the vision that God has given for his kingdom. Somebody please say Amen. So how, Esther claps. If you have questions, talk to her. How, how can we be generous to you? There are some of us in this church who literally have too much money. I'm not telling you how much too much money is because I don't know. But you know, you know that you have too much. And you know that that needs to be invested in somebody else's life for their flourishing? If I don't know your need, I don't have the opportunity to serve God for God's purposes in my life by giving away what I was never supposed to keep in the first place. Some of you have some stuff that's not for you to keep. It's for you to invest in somebody else's life. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's that relationship with somebody you can introduce somebody to. Are you with me? We don't hoard our stuff. We're not stingy with our relationships. How can we be generous to you? That was God's vision for his people. An environment where everybody flourished. Everybody was okay. Not our low bar of do no harm, but no, everybody is flourishing. Can we step into that a little bit as a church? That's the generous justice of Jesus exhibited by this widow as she points to Christ's coming death on the cross. So three, those are my three ideas. Take them for what they're worth. Having simplicity, the, the upcoming giving challenge. How can we be generous to you? How might the Holy Spirit be calling you to represent the kingdom of God through generosity and justice as we come to the end of this year. I'm almost done. We represent the kingdom of God through generosity and through justice, through Jesus' generous justice. That kingdom has come near through Jesus' death and resurrection. And I know that's hard for some of us to see because the deception runs deep. And so we can just assume this is just how it is. We got to just kind of go along with the way things are structured. 
We're often distracted in our lives by the equivalent of flashy temples and and noisy leaders. But the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus. And with it, the chance to live generously and justly. So to those of us today who are giving out of our abundance, who are throwing our tithes and our offerings into the receptacle, the call is to giving sacrificially. To those of us who are living that sacrificial generosity, some of you, despite the injustices of poverty, the call is to hear your Savior's delight. And to each of us, as we live within this society which builds wealth on somebody else's suffering, the call is always to pursue the generous justice of the kingdom of God. That the world would know the generous justice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I'm going to have the ushers come up to receive the offering. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, friend of sinners, we thank you that though we stand in need of your word of judgment, that your word of judgment is always a word of liberation and healing. You judge what needs to go. You judge what has held us captive. You judge what has exploited and taken advantage of somebody else. And so we will, through your spirit, entrust ourselves to your judgment today. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Purify us, Lord God, of anything that is not of you. Make us a more accurate representation of your people. Thank you for being generous with us. Thank you for satisfying the justice of our creator, God. Thank you for being a vision of justice in this world that is better than anything else that we would see and find around us. Thank you for being a foundation strong enough to place our hope and our identity on for all time. God, would you show us, please, today, any places where we are looking for our hope and our identity apart from you. Rescue us. Rescue us and return us to you, Lord Jesus. For any of us who have not placed our faith in you, Lord God, would today be a day where we would say, I confess I need you. I confess I can't do this on my own. I confess I need a Savior for every one of my sins. Rescue me, Jesus. And as a community, would you be giving us a truer and truer vision of your kingdom? that we would live together as a just and a generous people for the good of our neighbors and for your glory. Receive now these tithes and these offerings. Please put them to good work. Please help us to be good stewards and to invest well for your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Yeah. As the baskets go by, please place prayer cards or welcome cards in there as well. Listen, if you're a guest and you didn't have time to fill out the welcome card, uh, drop it at the, at the table on the way out so that we can follow up to you and get to, get to know you a little bit more. Um, are there any other announcements that I should be making? Amy, is there anything I should be making? No? Go ahead. Oh, all right. Amen. Okay. Thank you. So stick around. Help us clean up. Um, 
Listen, if you're not a member of this church and you've been around for a while, I really would love to invite you to membership. The, uh, the, the classes that are coming up, they're for you. We do our best to keep them small, engaging. So please sign up for that. And if you are new-ish to our church, we'd love to feed you in a few weeks. So give us that information on your way out as well. Okay, would you stand, please, for the benediction? If anyone needs prayer after the service, please come forward and receive prayer from Pastor Michelle, myself. Um, but thank you so much for being with us today. I am uh, trusting that as we move into this season, as some of you are traveling and going to be with extended family in the coming days, that the Spirit will continue to speak to us about the generous justice of God in our day. Amen? That we would be a beautiful and compelling witness that could only be understood through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now, uh, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace today, in the coming week, and the rest of this year. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Happy Thanksgiving.